can have a seat. As you do, grab your Bible, if you would, and open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you're using one of the Bibles under the seat in front of you, we will be on page 958. Page 958. We are continuing this morning in our sermon series, our mini-sermon series that we are calling When We Gather. And... The purpose of this series is for us to kind of examine the things that we do together when we gather as a church, that we might understand why we do what we do. As the name suggests, these are elements that are part of gathering, and so I'm, I'm just going to take for granted the fact that we know that it's important to gather, that we know that the Bible is clear, that we are to not forsake assembling together, but that Christians should be in the habit of regularly gathering in the flesh together with one another. And so it's on that foundation that this mini-series is built. Last week, Pastor Nick Rogers helped us to understand baptism and what the Bible teaches about baptism and why it's significant and why so often when we gather together, we baptize men and women. This morning we will be looking at the meal that Jesus gives us. The meal that Jesus gives us. And there are different places in the Bible that we could go to see the Lord's Supper. We could go, for example, to the gospel narratives, to Matthew or Mark or Luke. We could see Jesus' instructions, as we read a few moments ago, about the Lord's Supper. But this morning, I want us to go instead to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. Corinth, just for some historical background, was a significant city in the first century. In Acts chapter 18, we read about how Paul, or God used Paul to plant a church in Corinth. And just encourage you to maybe jot down Acts 18. Maybe later today you'll go back and revisit, reread Acts chapter 18 and see some of the glorious details around how God planted a church through the Apostle Paul in the city of Corinth. But Paul has now long since left Corinth, and he has moved on, he's planted other churches, he's ministered in other regions, and he begins to get word back about the church in Corinth. He begins to hear through the grapevine about the status of the church in Corinth, and what he hears is not good. He hears about factions and divisions in the church. And church members are dividing into cliques over their favorite pastor or their favorite elder. Some say, I'm, I'm a real follower of Paul. And others are like, you know what, I'm really more of the of Cephas kind of guy. And others are like, you know what, Apollos. And he's, he's better than all of them. He is my favorite pastor. And you can read more about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But added to that problem of these kind of divisions that exist, Paul also hears how the church in Corinth has failed to address blatant, unrepentant sin among her members. They aren't practicing church discipline over gross, unrepentant sin. In fact, quite to the contrary, they view their tolerance of this sin as a badge of honor in the church, as though somehow they were great because they just endured or tolerated this man's sin. You can read more about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 
If all that wasn't bad enough, and it clearly is, the Corinthian church members allowed class distinction and financial differences to segregate and divide them. And this is what Paul confronts directly in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And clearly, the Corinthian church is a problem-ridden church. And so Paul writes both to commend where they're right, okay, here are the few things you do well, and to point out and confront and address and correct the things they're doing wrong. And one of the areas that they have wrong is the Lord's Supper. Now, before we get into our text specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I just want to warn you, this text as we jump into it, will sound maybe a bit like if you're at your friend's house and you kind of come around the corner and find them like disciplining their child. Maybe they have one of their children there and they're having like, here's what you did wrong. And, and you kind of walk in, maybe you've been in that moment and you're like, oh, this is a little uncomfortable. And you kind of like creep back, you kind of move away. That's a bit what this is going to feel like as we jump into 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. But... It's significant that we look at this because Scripture records it because it's here for our instruction and for our edification. Paul is writing to call out the Corinthians' sin regarding the Lord's Supper. He is also, as we will see, going to establish the right pattern or the right basis for the Lord's Supper. So Paul isn't just pointing out what they do wrong. He's also going to point to what they should be doing right and what they need to correct. And as I said, these patterns and warnings aren't just significant for the Corinthian church. This is not just a history lesson. Like, don't be like the Corinthians. There's a pattern for us as well, for all churches. So, look with me at the text, beginning in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The word of the Lord says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse for in the first place when you come together as a church I hear that there are divisions among you and I believe it in part for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized but when you come together it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No. I will Paul has just commended them in verses 2 through 16. He's just encouraged them, praised them for some things they're doing rightly, but now he is not commending them. In fact, he writes in verse 18 that when they come together as a church to receive the Lord's Supper, it's not for the better, it's actually for the worse. Did you catch that? The way that they were practicing the Lord's Supper was actually harmful. Lest we think that any time we receive the elements of the bread and the fruit of the vine, that it's always going to be a net gain. 
whatever it is that they are doing, as Paul writes in verse 20, it is clearly not the Lord's Supper, which ought to lead us to ask, well, what is it that they are doing? What's the problem? What would cause a rebuke like this from the Apostle Paul? Answer, it was their divisiveness. Look at verse 18. For in the first place, so one of the reasons that it's not for the better or for the worst, for the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. So Paul rebukes them for their divisiveness, but we're told more specifically, it was their lack of care and concern for one another. Look at verse 20. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So here's the reason what they were doing was not the Lord's Supper. It's because they were not caring for one another. One goes off and eats his own meal, and the other has nothing. One goes hungry, and another gets drunk. The wealthy in the church in Corinth were gorging themselves on the Lord's Supper. Meanwhile, the poor, who couldn't afford to bring anything to the meal, were left with nothing. Tom Schreiner argues that perhaps the rich were even eating in a different room than the poor. The rich were eating in the room where all the food was, you know, where the parties really happening. And the poor were made to eat outside and did not have sufficient food or drink. Meanwhile, they could hear the rich inside, partying, having a great time, getting drunk, gorging themselves. Now, in the Greek language here, the Greek construction shows that every person is essentially eating at the same time. So getting to the meal late isn't the primary issue here. This is not, this is not an issue of tardiness. This is an issue of consideration. The issue was not eating together. Some had an overabundance and were getting drunk. The rich were using the Lord's Supper just to stuff themselves as they would at any other meal. And meanwhile, others were neglected and went hungry. And so the point is, people were eating and drinking and maybe even calling it the Lord's Supper, it, but it was not. Because of their divisiveness, this was clearly not the Lord's Supper. These divisions, according to verse 19, were actually separating true believers from imposters. The imposters were the ones who took the bread and took the cup and, and ate and drank of the Lord's Supper, but they failed to take them rightly. Which brings us this morning to an important principle about the Lord's Supper, and it is this. The Lord's Supper is not open to modification. The Lord's Supper is not open to modification. The Lord's Supper is not a canvas for our creativity with a few pencil marks for reference. No, the Lord's Supper is given by Jesus Christ to be practiced according to his pattern. And we'll see just in a minute some of the details of that pattern, but we can see how the Corinthians lose 
Their, their loose and their unguarded practicing of the Lord's Supper then led to this rebuke, which is good for us to remember as well, especially when we can be tempted to change the Lord's Supper. When we're tempted to offer it to anyone, for example, instead of only those who are born-again Christians. Or when we're tempted to offer it quickly and without reflection, almost in a kind of drive-by, just quick and easy sort of method, rather than stopping and considering and thinking and praying, which Paul will address in verse 28. Or when we're tempted to think that the Lord's Supper is a suggestion to be altered to somehow fit our lives instead of a very specific command for his people to follow. Friends, the table of the Lord is joyous, but it is also weighty. This is something that God has ordained for us. God has laid out the instructions for the Lord's Supper, which is precisely where Paul goes next. Look at verse 23. He's just said, I'm not going to commend you. I'm not going to give you a pat on the back. I'm going to warn you. I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to point out your sin. For, verse 23, or because I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. So Paul writes, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, church in Corinth. So Paul is passing on the words of Christ to the church in Corinth. And now to us. That Jesus took the bread and explained that in this special meal, the bread is his body, which is broken for his people. And then he took the cup and he explained that this cup is the new covenant in his blood. And throughout scripture, blood is shed for the covering of sin. We see it all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 when God kills an animal and blood is shed that he might provide coverings of skin for Adam and Eve to cover their sin. We see it infamously on the final night when the Israelites were in Egypt right before the Lord led them out. They gathered together in their homes and took the blood of lambs and spread it across the frame of their door in faith that the death angel would pass over them. And by the grace of God, for all who applied the blood to the doorpost of their home, the death angel did pass over them, which is where Passover comes from. It's no surprise then that on this night that Paul refers to when Jesus was gathered together with his disciples in that upper room on the night that Jesus was betrayed, it was the very celebration in all of Jerusalem of Passover. It would have been obvious to Jesus' followers gathered with him. This is something that both connects to the past blood of the covenant, and this is something also very different and very new. 
This is the new covenant. Jesus' blood would now be shed. Where formerly thousands, if not millions, of bulls and goats and rams and sheep were, were killed and their blood was shed for the covering of sin. Now there would be, according to Hebrews, a once and for all sacrifice for the cleansing of sin for all who believe and trust in Jesus. All those... As one theologian points out, all those who have rebelliously in sinned listened to the voice of the serpent who said as he, to us, as he said to Eve, take and eat, are now invited to a table where Jesus Christ, the Holy Son of God, says, take and eat. And so as often as we have this meal together, we do this in remembrance of Jesus. This brings us to another important principle that we see here about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper has past, present, and future implications. So the meal looks back in the past to Jesus, back to his sacrifice, back to his blood shed and his body given for us, for our sin, because the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. So this meal remembers the past, but it also has a present reality, because the Lord's Supper commemorates the new covenant. And so when we as Christians take of the bread and take of the cup and we eat it and the bread goes inside of us and the cup We take the cup and the juice goes inside of us. It's a reminder of the indwelling presence of Jesus' Holy Spirit, of our union with Jesus Christ through his shed blood. The present salvation that we walk in, the present power of the Holy Spirit given for us, the present satisfaction of Jesus' blood in the sight of God for our sin. But this meal also looks ahead to something that will happen in the future. Verse 26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there is a declarative work that happens when we take the bread and we take the cup. We don't just reflect on the past. We don't just consider our reality that is, exists now. But we also declare something that will happen. We declare our hope and our confidence in the return of Jesus Christ for his own. We remember the words of Matthew 26 that we all read together earlier that Jesus told his disciples he would not drink of the fruit of the vine until he drank it anew with them in his father's kingdom. The Lord's Supper looks ahead to the time when we will gather around the marriage supper of the Lamb together with Jesus and we receive of this glorious meal to come that Revelation 19 tells us about. So in a way, the Lord's Supper as we receive it this morning is really just an appetizer. Just something to whet the appetite, to be reminded both of the, of, the, of the completed work of Jesus Christ in the past, but also of the glorious meal that we will partake of together. As brothers and sisters, and we take these elements and we say, you know what, this wafer is maybe not the greatest, maybe a little stale, the juice, there's not really that much, but you know what, there's a meal coming. 
we will forever be with King Jesus. And that meal will be beyond compare. And so, as a church, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We recognize that it has past and present and future implications. If you look at just the way Paul like kind of outlines the argument here in verses 17 through 34, you can see that verses 23 through 26 function kind of as the foundation of Paul's argument. So in verses 17 through 22, Paul says, here's what you're doing wrong when you take the Lord's Supper. And in verses 23 through 26, he says, here's what the Lord's Supper is really about. And now, as we're going to get to, in verses 27 through 32, he's going to show us why getting the Lord's Supper wrong is so very dangerous. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now notice just the weightiness here and the warning. According to verses 27 and 29, to take the Lord's Supper wrongly is to be guilty of what? To be guilty of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ himself. I don't know about you, but I I can't think of any weightier warning to tie something to. Like, do this wrong and you're guilty of the body and the blood of the precious, holy Son of God. Paul even writes in verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So there were some in Corinth who were sick and some who were weak and some who even died as discipline for taking the Lord's Supper wrongly. And I pause because I'm not sure that many of us have a category for God working like that. Keep in mind, this is, these are new covenant believers. This is not a different time period. This is not a different covenant. This is new covenant as we are new covenant. And Paul says the reason that some of you are sick Some of you are ill, some of you are weak, and some have even fallen asleep in the Lord is because of the way that you have misapplied or mistaken or played fast and loose with the Lord's Supper. These were people who gorged themselves on food and became drunk on the communion wine, but in the end, 
It was they who became weak and sick and died, not the ones who were malnourished. Now, as we try to understand what Paul is saying here, I think it's important to know, and the word died that you see there in verse 30 can also be translated fall asleep. In fact, you likely have a note in your Bible about that. That's significant because falling asleep is a term that's used in the New Testament for believers who have died. When the New Testament talks about believers who've died, it oftentimes uses the term fallen asleep, but that term fallen asleep is never used for unbelievers who die and face eternal separation from God. Which is why, part of the reason why I said this is discipline, they're, they're experiencing the discipline of the Lord here. They're not necessarily facing punishment. In fact, I think that that's clear in verses 31 and 32. Paul says, but if we judged ourselves truly, Paul is saying, if you take stock and take the Lord's Supper rightly, if you're careful to do as the Lord has taught, as the Lord has commanded, if you're exercising sound doctrine in your administration of the Lord's Supper, then you would not face the ultimate judgment seat of the Lord and face condemnation. But now you are being judged by the Lord, verse 32. There's a judgment that is happening. The Lord is judging. He's disciplining you so that you will not be condemned with the world. Here's what's happening. The believers in the city of Corinth, some of them are, are, are wrongly taking the Lord's Supper. And Paul is saying, because you're wrongly taking it, that's actually not even the Lord's Supper. And the Lord loves you in grace so much that he is drawing you back to himself and he will, he will stop at nothing. He will allow sickness, he will allow weakness, he will allow illness as a warning, as a way of disciplining you to bring you back to himself, even to the point of falling asleep in this life so that you would be spared from the ultimate judgment seat of the Lord to come. This is not a novel concept to Paul. This is the exact same logic that he uses in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians for practicing church discipline towards the man in unrepentant gross sexual sin. And so that that discipline, although unpleasant, will lead to the ultimate salvation of this man. Hebrews chapter 12 contains this same theme where we read, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not be much more subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. 
All of this then now brings us to the central point of the text, or to ask, make it into a question, we could say, how then are we to receive the Lord's Supper? We've seen all the ways not to receive the Lord's Supper, all the warnings, all the dangers. How are we to receive the Lord's Supper? I think the text offers four ways we are to receive the Lord's Supper. First, we should receive the Lord's Supper with the body of Christ. So besides the fact that the Lord's Supper was practiced when the church gathered together, and besides the fact that Paul clearly says in verse 17 and verse 18, when you come together, the Lord's Supper is fundamentally a proclamation by the spiritual body of Christ, the church, of the death, resurrection, and return of the physical body of Christ, Jesus himself. This isn't just a me and Jesus thing. There is a public declaration that happens when the spiritual body of Christ come together to receive of of the elements which represent the body and the blood of Christ as we look ahead to the return of his body, the return of Jesus Christ himself. In fact, we see here in our text that the The Corinthians' primary transgression was that they made the Lord's Supper a privatized activity for their own benefit rather than a manifestation of the saving work of God for the whole body. This is one of the reasons we celebrate the Lord's Supper together because it declares a corporate reality. We who were formerly separated from God and separated from one another in different backgrounds and ethnicities and economic classes and educational levels, we now, through the work of Jesus Christ, are one body. And this is always and only through the one act of the one Messiah, Jesus Christ. Through this one act, God has created one people and brought him to the one Father. This may be new, to some of you, and that's okay. But this is why we as a church don't celebrate the Lord's Supper in small groups. This is why we don't celebrate the Lord's Supper with families in their homes. Hey, you want to come over for dinner? We're going to grill out, and then we'll have Lord's Supper together. We don't do that. We don't have the Lord's Supper together. The youth don't have the Lord's Supper together on your retreats. We don't have the Lord's Supper with couples at the marriage altar. It's the reason we frown on parachurch groups and college clubs and social gatherings receiving the Lord's Supper. We frown on receiving the Lord's Supper outside the gathering of the local church, the gathering of the people of God together because it's not a privatized event. It's a declaration of who we are as a people who have been saved into one body by the blood of Christ, who are indwelt by the one Holy Spirit of God and who await the return of King Jesus together. I don't know that receiving the Lord's Supper in a small group or in a a college group or with a parachurch organization is necessarily sinful. But on the basis of this text and others in the New Testament, I think it's theologically thinner ice than our elders are willing to walk on. The Lord's Supper is for the church, for the body when we gather together. 
Second thing we learn about the Lord's Supper is that we should receive the Lord's Supper remembering Christ. We won't stay long on this point since we've already looked in detail at what the Lord's Supper represents. It just seemed weird that in a list of ways (laughs) to, to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we would not at least mention that we ultimately are remembering Christ. So point two, we should receive the Lord's Supper remembering Christ, which brings us to point three. We should receive the Lord's Supper after examining ourselves, which comes directly from verse 28. Let each or let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We are to examine ourselves. This does not mean that only perfect people can receive the Lord's Supper. If that were true, then the disciples gathered together with Jesus would not have had the Lord's Supper. If that were true, Paul would have no reason to write because the Corinthian church should not be celebrating the Lord's Supper. It would mean that none of us can receive the Lord's Supper. Beyond that, the very meaning of the Lord's Supper at its theological core is that you were hopelessly dead in sin, unable to save yourself, just as I, And yet God in grace and love provided his son Jesus Christ to accomplish the salvation of all who believe. So the very receiving of the Lord's Supper together is a reminder, I am not perfect. But my righteousness does not rest in my performance. But in Jesus' completed work. Therefore, we should examine ourselves. We should take stock of our lives. Are we trusting in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins? Are we playing games? Are we living in unrepentant sin? But the Lord's Supper is not just, as I said, between me and Jesus. It is, but it's also about us and Jesus, which leads us to the final way that we should receive the Lord's Supper. Number four, we should receive the Lord's Supper while discerning the body. While discerning the body. Verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And I submit to you that that the body there in verse 29 isn't talking about the the individual physical bodies of the Corinthian members. I think he's referring to the body of Christ. He's referring to the church at Corinth. Anyone who eats or drinks without discerning the body, the local church gathered there, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And I think that, not only because that's how Paul has used body up until now, but if you look across the page to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, especially in verses 12 and following, he's going to begin to spell out in more detail what the body looks like. The whole problem with the Corinthian church's misuse of the Lord's Supper is summed up like this. They failed to care for and pay attention to the whole church body. They only thought of themselves. And so there were rampant divisions and unforgiveness and unaddressed sin and factions and bitterness among members. And yet they carried on with the Lord's Supper, failing to consider each other. Failing to see that the work of Christ makes all of these diverse people one. One body. 
So we are to receive the Lord's Supper while discerning the body. Verse 33, so then my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for or share with one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Don't use the Lord's Supper table as a way to get your caloric intake for the day. Approach the Lord's Supper table for what it is, commemorating and declaring the work of Jesus. So Paul says, do everything you need to do to assure that when you come together, you do so in unity and in love and in mutual sacrifice and service, recognizing this table isn't just about what Jesus has done for you. It's also about what Jesus has done and is doing and will do for a people, this people, the church, the body of Christ, and declaring that he will come back for this people. And so we should pay heed to the body. Are we loving church? Are we serving one another? Are we being considerate to one another's needs? Are we forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven us?